A few years ago, my wife and I got to be on this awesome adventure in Thailand, visiting a couple of our overseas workers. And we landed in Chiang Mai after a harrowing experience in China, uh, not over viruses or anything. They just flew us into the wrong airport and drove us across Shanghai. So it's kind of interesting. But when we got there, we were amazed at the vast difference in on the way that the cultures were from American to even Chiang Mai, which was like an urban, semi-Western uh, city. In fact, there were no churches you could find. If you were looking for them, it was going to be difficult. But you would find a wat, a temple, pretty much on every corner. In the morning, you would hear the monks walk by in their orange robes singing, and you would find people had laid out little plates of food for the, um, for the spirits to get luck, and they would be burning in front of every home or in a, a little, little kind of mini dollhouse where the spirits supposedly lived. You would find them giving food in those things. As you walked along, you'd hear people talk in language that, you totally didn't understand. It was a sing-songy, up-and-down, tonal song, which was fascinating, song language, which is fascinating to listen to and try to learn how to say it and realize you could say something completely wrong if you didn't use the right tone. And then we would see the writing, and it was all in Sanskrit. And so Sanskrit's a very different-looking kind of set of figures. It's not like our, our Roman script at all that we have. And yet they were kind enough to put kind of the English writing underneath it. English, you know, kind of transliterated. You didn't understand any of it. And in fact, as you're walking around for the days, you're trying to figure out where are we going and what are we doing? And our, our, you know, our friends were very helpful through the whole thing. And finally, it kind of hits you how, how much they're trying to help you as an American. When we were walking through the Queen's Garden in the middle of Chiang Mai, beautiful botanical gardens, and we're walking through the orchid section, and my wife and I are kind of just enjoying some time looking at this place, and we realized that this is how hard they're trying to communicate because they know things are so different that they knew we wouldn't know where the bathrooms were unless they made it explicitly clear. So they put this sign up. I love that sign. Anybody want to petition that that would become the American sign for bathrooms? That thing is awesome. I couldn't, we couldn't help. We had to take a picture of it. But it, it was clear. They were trying their best to communicate to us, you got to go. It's that way. So um, we, one of the interesting pieces, though, about this is as you're walking through this vastly different culture, the question that we've been asking in this series is, does that mean the gospel would make sense there? Does the gospel of Jesus Christ that began in the Middle East, that had gone into a Roman Western world, has been kind of sitting in the West and in the United States for all these centuries, does it need to be changed? Does it need to be adjusted? Does it need to be, you know, made different so that they can grasp because they aren't like us, you know, maybe they're not dealing with sin, maybe God's not what they're, what is it? Because we've seen that there is a generation right now that longs to change the gospel. They think because it's not liked in our latest generation, something needs to change. And Dr. Luke clearly said that's not the case. It's not about whether people like it or not. It's going to be disliked. In fact, last week we saw how little it will be changed. That It's going to be the same message, but it's about how we engage it. It's about how we deliver it with reason, thinking through scripture by being considerate in these kind of pieces. But that's in that culture. What about a completely different culture like Thailand? What about going to a place that's radically so different that they, they wouldn't even get it if you were being as clear as you could, in a sense, in, in your English or in the way that we understand church? And I think this is what the question we're going to engage today as we examine one more journey of the Apostle Paul as he's moving forward. If you want to join us, we're going to be here in Acts chapter 17. Why don't you grab a Bible and open it on up there with me. Um, you're going to need your Bible today. If you don't have one, you can grab one from under the seats. And if you don't own a Bible, go ahead and take that one home. We don't mind. We would love you to have one. You can find our section here in page 926. Or if you've got your app open again, it's Acts 17. And what we're doing is, if you're joining us in the book of Acts for the first time, this is a book written by a doctor named Luke. Now, Luke was a physician in the first century who had been asked by a Roman, um, a, a Roman authority to write out the history of the church. So he wrote in his first document, his first scroll was a book on the biography of Jesus. And so he writes out his research biography of Jesus. We today call it the Gospel of Luke. And then his second book that he writes out follows up on that. And it's the first 25 years of the early church from when Jesus ascends into heaven 
to the time Paul the Apostle brings the gospel to Rome. And we're following this one named Paul around. He used to be named Saul, and he once persecuted the church. But upon meeting the resurrected Jesus, he was converted on the spot and became a church planter. Now, he's been going around to his church plants, and he's been encouraging them that they don't have to be Jewish. They can just simply follow Jesus. And as he's been leading that message around, he's now found himself in what, what today is modern-day Greece and ancient uh, Macedonia, and he ran into some problems. We'll pick that up right here in verse 13, if you'll follow with me. It says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they also departed. Now, here's what that's talking about. Here's your ancient map here. They've traveled all the way up there to that top corner of Berea. They usher him to the sea, and they sail all the way down to the port of Athens. Now, who hasn't heard of Athens? I mean, Athens is that, that famous location of philosophers. It is that famous Greco, the Greece, the city of Greece itself. You learn about it, you know, in way back in junior high. You know, you've heard of him. You've heard of these guys, you know, Plato, Socrates, morons. No, I'm sorry. That was a reference to a movie. But um, what we have here is this famous college town. Think of it in those terms. What you have is a group of people who love thinking and talking and thinking intellectually and engaging in the thought life. This is a college town. Every ideal, every political thought is going on in Athens, and Paul gets off the boat in this town. And as he's walking around, he's not looking at an irreligious world. He's looking at a massively religious world. Tons of gods lining all the, different, um, all the different temples, temples on every corner, a giant open marketplace. You've got tons and tons of conversations going on about you name it. It's being found in Athens. And what we find is Paul's roaming about in this place. It says in verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he, as he saw this, that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Now notice what's going on here. Paul, first of all, is roaming around. He sees all the idols and he's moved. He's, he's motivated to action so that he finds the synagogue. He's not going to wait for his buddies to show up. He's going to just get going. Finds the synagogue, goes to the marketplace, starts making tents and starts talking about Jesus Christ. But what motivated him, it says, is he was provoked. He was moved by all the idols in the city. And I believe that this is a key to how you and I engage Corona, how you and I engage Timiskel Valley, how you and I engage wherever you find yourself at work, in the gymnasium, you know, whether it's out in, at the field with your kids, with your coaching, you name it. We need to be moved to act. There needs to be a movement in our souls that motivates us to begin to preach the gospel. You see, we realized very early on that God empowers the gospel. He's the one that's going to give power to that message. And we are the ones then, like the wire, that wherever we go, we need to plug in where God's leading us. Paul goes, I'm in Athens. I see all this stuff. Man, I got to bring the message of Jesus to Athens. This is what I'm here to do. And so he engages it. And you know what? I think we should have a similar mentality. Do you realize there are gods that are controlling our world? There are gods that are the gods of Corona. And they are over and engaging everything that you and I are a part of. Stop and think about it. Just, just, we may think of them as ideas. We may think of them as, as concepts, but there is a God of success out there, isn't there? I mean, you think about the God of success, what he's telling us to do. This God of success says that your children, that you need to be successful so much so that you have a nice car, you have a nice house, you've got a room for your kids, your kids have the chance to go out and be the best at their sports teams or the best in their art world with the best education. So you're going to figure out what school to get them to or homeschool you're going to put them in or whatever because you want them to be successful. You want to engage them now in this world of success. You want to call them to be what they can be, to find their potential and live it out. And a lot of these young men and women who've grown up in that have postponed getting married, postponed having kids. They're building a debt. They've found themselves in massive and massive amounts of difficulty waiting for the perfect job because they want to succeed, only to wind up like many of us who look back and say, what have I succeeded at? 
man, I, I haven't found that passionate job. I'm still wrestling forward with things. And some of us who may have found that success, you may be looking at your life going, it's great. Yeah, I found a lot of money. Sure, I found a lot of success. But my marriage is a mess and my kids don't even know who I am. The God of success grinds us. The God of success lies to you. And I've met many people over this last weekend in our church who you would say, man, they are successes and they go, no, I'm not. I feel hollow. I don't even know if this, is, if this was worth it. And when we look around, we have an entire society running after that. You wonder where all the Teslas and things are coming from. They're coming from large amounts of debts and big kind of bank accounts and all kinds of different things like that. In many cases, we have a lot of people being ground down by the God of success. If not that one, how about the God of pleasure? You know what you guys need to do is you need to live it up, have fun, enjoy that, man. Hit that, smoke that, drink that, just have a good time. And that is the college youth manner that our culture is inundating ourselves with. And they get out of that world and they've had the experiences, pleasure upon fleeting pleasure. And they're with an addiction now and they're finding themselves struggling forward in life, wanting to let go of the pleasures. They don't know why they're here. They don't know what's up. And they find that they don't have good relationships. Their families are broken. Their children, if they have them, they may not even know who their parent, who their kids are out there or how many different people they have kids with. The world has been destroyed by the gods of pleasure. Amen? Now here's the thing that can happen. When we start seeing that these gods, whether it's the gods of pleasure, the gods of success, the gods of progress, the gods of sex, you name the gods that are roaming about demanding allegiance, you can have one of two reactions. And it's a reaction I've seen and I've been helping, and, I, and I've talked about this before. My kids began a public school at the beginning of the year. We'd done homeschool, we'd done private school, we did homeschool again. We're like, let's try public school, it'll be fun. And so we, we actually we were just realized some personal reasons, we've got to get this done. And so they're out there in the public school, they walk on campus, and I remember their first couple of weeks, they were like, Dad, you just put us into hell. Everybody cusses, this is, they were like freaking out, like things were being shown on screens, and they're talking about all these different things, and it was, it was crazy. The teachers are awesome, the administration is great, but my kids were just so sensitized to it. They'd never seen a rated R movie, let alone and lived in one, and suddenly here they are wrestling with this stuff. And they're like, Dad, Dad, all this. I'm like, listen, what you got to understand, all you're seeing is symptoms, right? These are the symptoms of people's sins. What you're seeing is the symptoms of people's struggles with their own souls. And when we get to realize that these things are symptoms, when you are provoked in your heart, you have one of two directions that you can fall. You can either fall on compassion or judgment. And church, let me just remind us, it is not our calling to fall into judgment. It is our calling to fall into compassion. It is our calling to be provoked so that we would have a heart for these people, a longing for them to find the answer to the brokenness that they're exposing from their soul. Not a chance to stand up, be self-righteous, and point our fingers down at the very people that we are ourselves very often. And Paul was motivated not by anger, not by self-righteousness. He was provoked because he saw the idols and he realized, you know what? These people need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what should provoke us. That's what should move us. Because guess what? If we aren't provoked, there are plenty of other people out there that are doing it. There are plenty of other philosophies seeking to solve the problem of the soul, the brokenness of success, and all these different pieces. Notice with me for a minute as we continue on. It says now, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, it's interesting these guys show up. Who in the world are the Epicureans and the Stoics? Well, they were people offering philosophies to answer the problems of life. They were looking at a world in which they believed was bound by fate, controlled by the gods or, or, or something else. And they were watching a mass of humanity making a mess of their world. And so the Epicureans came along and they were a very ancient philosophy. And they're a little bit, and they're actually mapped very well to our modern atheists. They were atheistic. They didn't believe in a spiritual realm. There's no such thing as life after death. There was only atoms and a concept of evolution that they held. And when they came to the results of looking at all this, they said the best thing for life is to limit the amount of pain and suffering you go through and to maximize the good pleasures. Now, they were not hedonists. They were looked at a frat party and said, you people are living a horribly ethical life and you're going to die from great pain. 
They were out for the good life, the best life, born in a limitation of pain and suffering and the maximization of the good and the beautiful and the mental life and the ethical life. Now, does that sound attractive? Of course it does. The thing is, this Epicureanism is different from the original Epicureanism. It changed over time. Why does something change? Because it doesn't work. Because it needs to be adjusted. Stoics came along and they had disagreed completely with the Epicureans. They were like, no, life's not about pleasure. It's not atomistic. There are the gods. In fact, there is only one God. There is a great God. It's like a spiritual force that surrounds us and binds us and holds the universe together. Literally, they believed in the force. Now, they couldn't move things with the force, but they believed that if you aligned yourself with the logos, the ordering, the ordering of the universe, that force that bound all things together, and you would live with logic, and you'd live with ethics, and it would work in the physics of the world, you would find harmony with creation. You would enter into the, almost a pantheistic oneness, and they're a lot like our modern Buddhists and their claims today, and you would enter into this beauty of an ethical living. And so they offered a spiritual route. And what's interesting is they too had to change their vision over and over and over again as they were moving on. In fact, if you'll look down here at the verse 21, this is how often they changed their vision. Paul said, by this point in, church, in the history of the world, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They just loved new ideas and sharing new ideas and changing their old ideas, man. They were all about progress. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? And what's fascinating about this is this isn't just Luke's assessment. This was well known, an assessment found in many, many ancient histories of the time period. They, they would mention that this is kind of what the Athenians did. They were the college town. Let's sit around with all the professors. Let's drink our coffee and talk about very intelligent things. I'm sure each of them had a pipe, you know, that kind of a thing. And so Paul has found himself engaging with these men, talking to these guys, and what he, he, he was ready, though. He understood these philosophies, and so they invite him up. They say, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is up on this large crop of land. There was this big cliff face with a kind of a plateau area, and at the, it was called the Acropolis. And up there, the town would meet. The, like the town leaders once met and would make determinations for the city of Athens. Now, at this point, Rome rules. That's not going on. And so it's been turned into the college. Really, you go up to this Mars Hill, this Areopagus or Areopagus or however you want to claim, call it, and stand there and, and make debates and enter into Socratic dialogue and talk about the new stuff. And so that's what's going on. They invite him up here. Let's, we want to hear about your new stuff. We want to know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for. You bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And so he goes up there. And he engages. And what I want to encourage you guys to do is as you're motivated, as you're bringing compassion to those places that you're in, whether it's the field, whether it's your family time, or when you're at a, you're at a dinner or something or a birthday party or upcoming an Easter or whatever it is, that as you're moved and com having compassion, you're caring for people and you're sharing the gospel, that you need to be ready when you're asked questions. You need to be prepared when you're going to be engaging. Because people are going to ask you questions. People are going to, to, an, to ask you what in the world's going on in your faith. They're going to ask Paul questions. They're like, we want to hear more. Tell us about this thing. And Paul wasn't like, well, I don't know. I just, I just met Jesus, and that's how it worked. Now, Paul was ready. Paul kind of grasped what he was engaging with here. Now, I get he was a bit of an intellectual, kind of a smarty pants, and I get that. But you can be ready, too. First of all, let me just tell you, um, we have all been called to this. In fact, the Apostle Peter, in writing to the church, he said, In your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord is holy, and be all, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and do it with respect. There's the compassion part. So we need to be prepared with answers. But here's the answer I don't ever want an olive brancher to give. Please do not answer somebody with this. I don't know, I just have faith. Eh, bad answer. We are in a world that deserves answers. We are in a world that needs to hear the logic and the understanding. Now, it is okay for you to say, I don't know, because some of you don't know, and that's okay. You follow it up with, well, let's go find out. Because I guarantee you, I have not met a question that hasn't been wrestled with in the past 1,500 years and well answered. 
There are plenty of answers to every problem of evil, every question of ethics, every issue that's out there that's been around. Christian philosophers and thinkers have been dealing with these things for a very, very long time. We're not the inventors of these questions, though many of us think we are. And what I want to encourage you guys is you can have answers. And maybe you're at the beginning of your faith and your answer is, I don't know, I never thought about that. Good answer. That is a good answer. It's authentic. It's kind. And then you invite them to come figure it out with you. And that, that follow-up maybe uh, I got a pastor. I think he might know. Let's go talk to him. Let's do it. Because that's the goal. Now, some of you, I would love for you to move further. Begin to engage deeper. Be ready to answer some of the questions, some of the objections that are coming to you. You're like, well, which ones? Well, the ones your friends are asking you. And none of my friends are asking me any questions. Because they're all Christians. So get engaged with non-Christians. And guess what? They'll start asking you questions. And you should answer the questions they are asking you. Very often, we will prep ourselves with all kinds of questions that nobody's asking anymore. Like, I got a whole bunch of apologetics information that, quite honestly, would, I would be rocking it in the 1700s. <laughs> answering all their questions. But we have to be ready for the prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. That means you're engaged with somebody. That means you've gone out there from compassion. You're talking to somebody. You've been moved and motivated to connect with what, at least one person at your gym or somebody in your family or somebody at your workplace. And they're like, you know, I got a question for you. And you, that's when you're like, oh, I'm scared. No, you're ready. Well, fire away. I love questions. And I want you to be ready to receive the question and then know that there are answers you can move forward. Paul is ready. Paul takes up this opportunity. He stands up in front of the people. And he begins this, this interesting journey here as he starts to answer questions. He says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he's walking about, one day he goes, unknown God. Well, I can use that, that's a good idea. Oh, what's this? Oh, I can use that. And so what's powerful is that he understood the culture surrounding him well enough that he could engage and he could connect. He could begin to make a bridge and he could begin to move forward. Now, this is not always easy when you start to present the gospel, is it? Because it can get confusing. It can get lost with all the philosophies out there, with all the stuff out there. I remember there was a time, my wife and I were taking an apologetics class at our, at, our, at our seminary, and when we were going through this class, at the end of it, our professor's like, you need to go get with, get with somebody who's not a Christian, and you're going to work through this process of apologetics, because it's foolproof, man. This will work. Like, that was, he was so confident about it. So we literally sit down in this room with my friend who grew up an atheist and a bunch of his family and friends, and we're having this conversation. We're trying to get, and it was just chaos. I mean, absolutely, I'm like, yeah, and, and this is the Kalam Cosmologist argument. God, and they're like, what about this? What about a pizza monster? And blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And you're just like, what is going on? And it was just going all over the place. And in the end, we're just like, this did not work. And I realized, never evangelize drunk people. <laughs> really, what was going on is that we were using the wrong category of information. We're talking about epistemologies and ontological arguments and cosmological arguments and deontological arguments. Anybody lost yet? Yeah, they were too. You know what they cared about? How were the Dodgers doing? So you got to be able to translate. You got to be able to go into there. You see, if we don't understand our culture. We don't understand how to engage. You see, there are philosophies our culture's buying into to deal with the gods. There's the Epicureans and Stoics of our day too. You know what they're telling you and me? Hey, look, way back. You remember when you were a kid? Everything, you know, a little kid. I'm not talking about like an eight-year-old. I'm talking about like when you were five. You remember how it felt? Man, Christmas was awesome. You knew who you were. You were excited about life. Things seemed so good and wondrous and perfect. You'll notice so many people right now are idolizing children and idolizing the beauty of childhood so much so children truly know who they are. Let them know. They know who they are. Let them express who they are. Don't get in their way because the second you do that, what you will do is you will repress them or you will oppress them. And when you repress or oppress, that's what's wrong with you. You've all been oppressed. You've all been repressed. You've been taught these spiritual things by your parents or by that evil pastor or whatever and your philosophy and it's shoving down who you truly are and it's containing you because these things are bad and you feel ashamed about who you are 
are. And the government won't let you be free. And these other things are oppressing you. And what you need to do is you need to just unchain yourself. So get away and find out who you are. Get back to who you are. Go take your Enneagram. Get your Myers-Briggs down. Make sure you engage with a good counselor. Sit down and, and, re, and, and throw off your unfettered chains and go eat, pray, love, and you will discover who you are. And when you discover who you are and you come to wholeness about yourself, no one will ever mess with you again. You will be free and you will be able to tell everyone why they're wrong and you will sit my ties by the beach and people will serve you. Anybody seen that in a commercial lately? And this is literally the philosophy that's grabbing an entire generation. Find yourself, live yourself, don't repress the children, let them be free, children's rights, all this stuff. Because we believe in a gospel that's different. Because we know there's oppression, we know there's gods of success, sex, and, and all the slavery that comes with serving these gods and sacrificing to these gods and doing these things and you're enslaved to these gods. And we're wrestling, how do we answer it? We need to understand this because when we engage, we are going to have to speak a language that they get because sometimes, no, we don't need to change the gospel, but sometimes when we tell the gospel, you got to use an adapter. You hear me? What do, you, what, what do I mean? Look, I've got a couple plugs on this thing. I think you guys noticed. One of these goes to the modern updated iPad, right? That, the iPhone, iPad goes on that thing. It, this one isn't going to work anymore. Big fat one, same, same wires, same energy, same plugger, different adapters. Plugger, did I just use the word plugger? <laughs> Plug. And what you see here is the fact that sometimes while you're the wire, God needs you to adapt to speak a language that makes sense to them. It's called contextualization. That, that can be a dirty word in some cases. It's not the way that I want to use it because guess what? It's happening right in front of your face right now. Do you know why the Eastern Orthodox Church has a bunch of icons on the ceiling and a bunch of pictures and statues and stuff all over the place and some guy walks in and kisses Bibles? Do we understand why there's smoke and stand up, sit down, say this, say that, stand in the, in the Roman Catholic Church? These are all innovations to bring the gospel to an illiterate people. It was a way of training them and teaching them a liturgy so they could live it out and put it in their lives and disciple them. And then along comes the Reformation and we throw a bunch of that stuff out. And what we do is instead now we got a pulpit with a Bible because Bibles are brand new inventions that are in everybody's homes. And we start preaching the message, teaching the Greek, Sunday school classes come and the Lutheran church still does that model. And along come the Baptists, they're like, no, we got to be like the people, and we got to speak the language of the people, and we got to do the songs of the people. And that's why in the 1950s, we still do the hymns of the 1950s today. That's how you do church. You know what? There will be a denomination that grows in the next hundred years that says you must have screens, and you must have a website, and you must have a speaker who does these things, or you're not doing church. You know what? It's all context. It's contextualization that gets caught into tradition that becomes an ought. And we have to understand that, guess what? You're, you're doing contextualization right now. I'm speaking English. I'm not speaking Greek. I'm not reading the Latin Vulgate. We're reading the ESV. And the reason why is because I want to communicate to you, Americans who are dressed as Americans, listening to English as Americans in a very suburban American world. And it's important that we think in these terms because Paul is going to put on this adapter and he's going to speak to these men as they need to hear it. And so check out how he does this. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said to the men of Athens, I perceive in every way you're very religious. And he talks about this unknown God. In other words, he does this. He looks for a way to connect. Saw this, saw that. And yeah, notice... Buddy, you're really interested. If, I think Paul would do this with a friend. He'd say, I, I noticed that you're really interested in finding yourself. Oh, yeah. I think it's super important. Have you ever considered seeing a counselor? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I've seen a few counselors. I can't find a good one yet, but I'm looking because I really want to deal with my stuff. Oh, awesome. Can, can I recommend a counselor to you? Oh, sure. It's like, uh, it's not a Christian counselor. Well, he kind of is, but let, let me explain. I, I, this counselor will know you better than anybody's ever known you. What are you talking about? Well, this counselor actually knows your mess before you even brought it. He's really good at seeing the patterns of humanity. In fact, because he's your maker. He's the one that made you. Did you know that you can have a connection with the one who made you? And he can help you discover who you are because he knows you perfectly. And he made you to be a certain person. 
And this counselor is available, right? I just link the counselor. Hey, do you want to be successful? Oh, man, I want to be successful. You know, I know things are bad at home. What if I was to invite you to meet a success coach who is so good that even in his greatest defeat, he pulled his greatest victory? And he teaches everybody how to, though they, we may look like failures on earth, we end up with an eternal kind of success. Sometimes we just need to put it in a context that's a little different. You know who's really good at this? The Buddhists. The Buddhists are there in your boardroom telling you to center yourself. Let's take a minute now of centering. This coming into our public schools because it's all so helpful. You know, let's balance ourselves inside. Let's empty ourselves out and calm. That's all Buddhism. It's in boardrooms. It's in classrooms. It's all over the place. Not religious, though. Of course it is. It's very religious. Go to your, you go to your, your coach and go, go do some workouts, and they're going to tell you, you need yoga. Man, yoga will really help you balance yoga. That's a Hindu practice. We just adopted it into our exercise routines as Americans. We're, they're really good at contextualization. See, the problem we struggle with is, man, sometimes I think we go, I want to say this, but I got to quote a Bible verse. See, it's right here. Here's what's weird. Paul will not quote a Bible verse at this point on. Paul is going to engage, and though he is referencing the Bible, he never explicitly says it like he does when he's dealing with all of his Hebrew buddies as he's preaching in a synagogue. And so he contextualizes, he jumps in, and he breaks, begins to break down their vision. Check this out. He starts to show them a different way. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Is that confrontational? Because you just look around, there's temples everywhere. And he's like, you philosophers know better than that. You know God doesn't live in the temples. God's way beyond the temples. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, as one of the famous or really bad Star Trek movies said, what does God need with a starship? And Paul says, I agree. What does God need with all these servants? What does God need with that guy feeding that little God over there? That's not God. God doesn't need anything. He's the one who gives to people all that they need. He made man from one man, or he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. In other words, this isn't some local deity. This is the deity of all deities. This is the God of all people. This is your God. He made your ancestors. He's the one that you should be finding. He doesn't live in no temple. Now, here's what's fascinating. Behind every single one of those lines is a Bible verse. Every single one of those lines. But he's not putting it like a Bible verse. Notice the very beginning. He says, to the, the God who made the world and everything in it. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. Yep, he is. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. In fact, we go on. He says, Okay, he's not served by human hands. That's what Solomon said when he built the temple. As though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. Genesis chapter 2. He made from one man every nation of mankind. Just read Genesis 1 through Genesis 12. And you will see all of that laid out there. In fact, it even goes into this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 32. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to their number of the sons of God. God divided the peoples up, gave them their gods and said, have at it in a judgment. And so he lays out the picture, a biblical picture, but he doesn't reference the Bible. In fact, what's really odd is what he will reference next. He references their poets. Check it out. He goes, yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. That's one of the philosophers of Crete. From the Epicureans, or sorry, from the, uh, from the Stoics. And as even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This is God's way beyond that. Let me tell you about the big God. Let me tell you about the great God. Let me, you don't need some human counselor who's trying to figure it out one person at a time, using you as an experiment so that he can figure out what's wrong with you and fix you. No, you need the, the, the best counselor, the great counselor. In fact, in the Bible, there's one called the counselor. He's called the Holy Spirit. You're like, whoa, what does that cost? Oh, he's pretty expensive. You probably couldn't afford him. 
Why? Well, the very brokenness that he tries to counsel out of us is actually an offense to him too because he's also a king and a judge. And so he wants you to fix everything and be perfect before you see it. Well, what kind of counselor is that? Oh, don't worry about it. He's got a great Groupon out right now. You see, his son Jesus came and gave us a Groupon where he would pay for the entire cost of seeing the counselor for the rest of your life by bearing all of our sin and the cost of meeting God on himself. I think that's a pretty good deal. To get to know the greatest counselor in the world who will meet you at any point. You don't even have to go to his office. He'll meet you at your home. He'll meet you in your car. He'll meet you at your work. He'll help give you advice on the moment and the spot. He'll help you know who you are because you're made after him and he's your maker. Man, what kind of counselor, what other counselor do you need? Success. I mean, let's really think about success for a minute. Who wants to have earthly success if you're going to be an eternal failure? I'll tell you about the one who had earthly failure but had an eternal success. His name was Jesus on that cross. What he did was he, mess, he took the mess and all the failures of humanity so he could flip them. For anybody who would receive him, man, he gives them the eternal success, his success, where he could stand before God in eternal glory. That's what the Bible says. So that even if you feel like you were a failure at work, he can enable you to be a success in the things that matter most. In relationships with people and caring with others. You can get off the, the rat race and engage in the real race, the, the chase after the God who made you. So you break it down. You just point it out. You start breaking it into a situation where they can begin to see, man, I need something more. This vision isn't going to help me. This direction isn't going to work. I need a pleasure greater than any pleasure I've ever found on earth if I'm going to get away from the pleasures that hold me down. We need to offer this as we get to know people and we're provoked by them, and then we construct God's vision as we move people forward. And as we construct that vision and help them see it, we give them this option. Notice what Paul does. He says, the times of ignorance of God, God overlooked. He knew you didn't know this, but now it's over. Now you know it. He commands that all the people everywhere to repent. Man, is that a word? Don't you love that word? That shows up in the boardroom every week, doesn't it? Repent! Unless you got a crazy boss or something. No, it's only a church word. And people hate that word. You know who uses this idea more than anybody? commercials. Think about it. We watch, we watch some shows and this ring commercial will come up and this girl's going to break up with her, you know, her security company. And she's like, I'm so sorry. Well, who's going to protect your house? And Shaq's back there going ring, you know, this whole thing. And guess what? What they just said, repent of your bad company, join the ring company. We are the ones that will help you just change your mind about what they're doing for you. And you'll find freedom in ring. Hey, you know what? You want, that, you want that food, but you don't want the animal fats. Come repent of your belief that, that a burger can't be made of pure, of pure plants and come to Burger King. It's just repentance. Every commercial is a call for you to change your mind from the way you used to think to a new way of thinking. Change your mind from the God of success to the God who will truly give you success in Jesus Christ. Change your mind from trying to find yourself to meeting the God who made you and knows you perfectly and made you after himself. That as you get to know him, you find truly what a human being is, truly how to have relationships, truly to walk in this world, and a counselor to boot who will walk with you, and he's paid for the costs Change your mind. You want the God who grinds you into the ground or the God that lifts you up? That's all repentance is. Switch your thinking. Change allegiance. Take the new. Take the better. Repent. Because he is fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. There is a day that will be coming. There will be a day that we will be judged. There will be a day that your success will be judged. And your success will not be judged by God's clear playbook of Ten Commandments. It will simply be judged by your own commandments to yourself. Think about it. You say, I don't want to steal, but have you ever stolen? Or maybe you don't want somebody, you're so angry at somebody and you're so angry they've judged you, but you're ready to jump on somebody in a heartbeat if they don't agree with you or believe in the same way. Hypocrite. Let me just be honest with you, you're a hypocrite, and God's going to point it out. God's going to show you can't even live up to your own standards, let alone his standards, so what are we griping about? We're going to have to deal with this. And that's the blessing that God wants to give you. He says, look, even when you can't uphold your own standards, my son is willing to bear your sin and your mess and your fakeness and your hypocrisy and your garbage like he bared mine. And he wants to give you access to the one 
who shapes you, changes you, and lets you know. He says, look, there's a judgment coming, and he's given us this assurance that we are free by raising him from the dead. In the resurrection of Jesus, you and I can know that we are free, and he gives us that opportunity to change. He makes it clear. This old way, it's not really that good. Why don't you switch on to the way that transforms you and go after it and trust the one who rose from the dead? He overcame the whole problem for us and gives you the best Groupon you'll ever find. Print it off and use it. Now, when you give that gospel, I want you to remember it's not whether somebody likes it. It's not whether you've done the best job of communicating it, all that stuff. It is simply about the fact that God powers it. God's the one who gives it. We need to, yeah, use adapters, try to get it to be, make sense in the best ways we can. But we need to trust God's the one who powers it and God's the one who's going to bring response. And there will be response. Trust that. Trust that there's going to be response. And that's what happens. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And there are going to be people who mock it. Again, some of you may be here today and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm sitting in a church with a Stone Age preacher who still believes in all these stupid miracles and junk like that, probably anti-medicine and philosophy and all that. You know what? I'm I'm just going to tell you, if you're in that zone and you're like a mocker and you just think everything I say is like wacky because we're reading some ancient, you know, knuckle dragon book or something like that, I get it. You don't need to be here. You, 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 You know, I just have one thing for you. I hope. I hope that for your sake that you're right. Because if you're wrong and you have to stand before the God that you mock, that's a risky business. But really, let's be honest, I doubt there are any mockers in the room because they didn't wake up this morning going, you know where I want to go? I want to go to a knuckle-dragging church. That's where I want to go. No, they're not here. I get that. You're going to meet them online, and you should not get angry at them. You need to have compassion. But you also do not set your pearls before swine. Move on. That's what Jesus told us to do. And so we move to the second group. Well, what's the second group? You know what? The second group, I believe there may be some of you here today who are in this category. Some men join, or so, so it says, so we will, some said, we will hear you again. We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. This is some of you are curious. Some of you have curiosity. You're here today because, hey, it's not working. You feel the pressure. You understand the mess. And you may have real intelligent questions before you're ready to follow Jesus. You may seriously want to know, what about, and you drop that name, you drop that question, you drop that issue of evil or whatnot. And you seriously need to wrestle through that. Can I tell you, welcome, you should have a place to bring your intelligent questions and engage them. We're not here to tell you just believe. We're here to say, you know what, you're a smart human being and you need to engage. I think if, you know, Steve Jobs was alive and he was doing a seminar about how to be rich and and make influence in culture, I think a ton of people would probably line up to figure out how they would read his book and those kind of things. Jesus Christ influenced the entire world with his teachings, has shaped the moral conscience of the entire Western world, has shaped now and is shaping the moral conscience of Africa, South America, even even in Asia at this time, rotating all the way into the Middle East. Yes, God is working. And it's through the work of Jesus. And I think that you have not just the right, you need to take it as an important thing to engage deeply in the questions that you have. You shouldn't walk away from a church going, I don't know, no, no, that's for my questions. We're here to help you. That's why we do this thing called Starting Point. It's a location because we know we can't answer them all on a stage where you can sit with other people who are asking questions and exploring who Jesus Christ is and engage in that. We want to let you have that chance. Grab any card you want, write starting on it, and put it in the back where you can text starting to 3825111. You know, So there, just an option. But we want to encourage you should not leave a church without having the opportunity to engage in the questions that you have about Jesus. You need to be able to do that. And so I would encourage you, if you're on that curious point, do that. But maybe you're at the final piece. Maybe you're at this group that as Paul went out from their midst, it says, some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And I want to encourage you, maybe what you need to do is today, Turn away from that old philosophy and that stuff that's grinding you down, those gods that are destroying you. Take an opportunity and walk after the one who made you. 
Take his gift of Jesus Christ bearing your sin and all the punishment on the cross so that you have access to the one God who loves you and knows you and is willing to walk with you through the rest of your life and lead you. I want to give you a chance to receive that right now. Would you bow your heads with me? If that's you and you know you need to receive that today and God is calling you and you're saying absolutely, I'll give you a chance to do that right now and just put your hand up and you're saying that's me and I want to pray with you. I'm going to walk you through a prayer. Gives you a chance just to verbalize that to God. And so if that's you, maybe it's been a long time, maybe it's a rededication, maybe it's the first time you've ever done this, I want to give you that chance. So maybe you're at home doing this too, I just want to give you that chance with this prayer. You say, God in heaven, I know that there's a gap between you and me. And I have no way to get to you, but I need you. I trust that Jesus Christ has taken my sins, taken my punishment. I trust that he's given me access to you. Please come into my life. Please meet me in it and lead me through it now, I pray. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you did receive that today, we want to encourage you to um, let us know by grabbing one of those cards, the blue cards in the seats, and uh, we'll have some prayer team members out and around. So if you want to come up to one of them during this song or after service, we would love, love, love to meet with you, connect with you. Otherwise, we're going to sing a song about our growth in Christ as we move from glory to glory to glory as we grow closer and closer to Him.
Amen, amen. Hey, we are so glad that you guys were here with us today. I pray that the gospel goes with you, that you're provoked to reach out to somebody. But maybe you're just a guest. You're checking out Olive Branch. We want one say welcome. We're glad that you're here. I'm in church, and we're glad you guys are here. Let, you know, as you're getting to know us, we want to get to know you. So would you let us know by grabbing one of these orange cards, and you can let us know that you've been here. You can take it out to our Connections team uh, out at um, Connection Central. We'd love to meet you. And this just enables us to begin that conversation. In fact, in two weeks, you're going to get to know even more about Olive Branch. We're going to jump into a vision series. We're going to start talking about why do we exist? What's this church all about? And really, honestly, a simple way to put it is, have you ever noticed Google's got a ton of information out there for you? There's no, you don't need to come to church for information. You don't need to come to church to, to, to have to learn from me. But what Google can't give you is understanding. And the goal at Olive Branch is to help go take all that information and help you see God's vision for how all this stuff fits together. And well, there's a lot to that and how we unpack that. And I want to encourage you guys to come out for those two weeks as we engage that conversation. Otherwise, our goal for you today is that God would bless you. And I hope that you've had an awesome morning. Turn around, say hi to somebody. We will see you guys next week.